This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and thank you for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. To get new episodes every Thursday, all you have to do is subscribe. Today we're shining a light on the clandestine machinations of a real-life high-ranking spy. But not so much a James Bond, rather a Jane Bond. Or in this case, Jane Horwood, who worked for King Charles I during the English Civil War period of the mid-1600s. And not so much a spy either, but in the language of the time, a so-called she-intelligencer. Jane Horwood's story is one of mystery, intrigue, coded letters, code names, ambiguous and strained relations, high stakes, high drama and personal disappointment. And joining us to steer us through her life and legacy is our special guest contributor, Nadine Ackerman, who is Professor of Early Modern Literature and Culture at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So before we get to know Jane Horwood, I think it's important to get to know you, Nadine, since you are new to the English Heritage Podcast. Can you tell us a bit more about your research? Yes, I'm a professor in English literature, but I would say I'm, I'm also a textual historian. That means I'm interested in handwritten documents, manuscripts. I'm perhaps an archival detective, always following paper trails. And I try to listen to unheard or marginalised voices. So your study of English literature inevitably takes you into the past. What got you interested in Jane Horwood, the key figure for this podcast? I was editing the correspondence of Elizabeth Stewart, Charles I's sister and sometime Queen of Bohemia for Oxford University Press. And thousands of letters went through my hands. And one day I stumbled upon the postmistress of Brussels. Her name was Alexandrine, and she had a kind of monopoly of the post in this period. And she also controlled the postal routes from the continent to England. And she turned out to be a major spy. She had what we call a so-called black chamber, which is a back office of the post office. And you just need to imagine 10 men sitting around a table, each having its own assorted task. One would open the letters, another one would copy the letters, Another one would translate or decipher letters if they happened to be in code. And then they would refold and reseal the letters and the recipient would be none of the wiser that the post had been tampered with. And this postmistress just sold the information to the highest bidder. So she had no kind of religious motivation, no political motivation, just motivated by making money. And she turned out to be such a major spy that I was thinking, if we have missed her... What other women have we missed in this period that operated as spies? And that's how I, I, on my book, started Invisible Agents, Women and Espionage in 17th Century Britain, which I wrote for Oxford University Press and was the first book really to acknowledge that there were women spies in this period and that we didn't have just a few examples that proved the exception to the rule, but that it was much a wider phenomenon. And Jane was one of these women whom we thought would sort of prove the exception to the rule, but she turned out to be very much like other women in the period. But because we knew her, she was certainly a good starting point for my book. Wow, that's fascinating. Out of a bent post office mistress, yes. you suddenly found that you could start investigating someone who is a bit more well-known, basically. 
Oh, yes, absolutely. It's kind of um, serendipity. You work in the archives, you stumble on one thing um, which leads you down a rabbit hole. And this turned out to be a very fascinating rabbit hole indeed. Wow. And all out of the desire to make money as well by this particular post office mistress. Yes, which I, I found very intriguing. And I think because I found it so intriguing, I realized that we didn't know much about women operating in the trade of espionage in this period. And there's so much material still available, especially about Jane, that she was a very good starting point for the book. And this proves that women were actually pretty good at hiding things, I suppose, in the oh, past. Oh, yes. Yes, very um, much so. And we've just recorded a, a women's history episode about some of the forgotten and obscure female figures from history. And I suppose this is just an example of how history can be forgotten. But it's forgotten, I suppose, in a good way because it's hidden because it's about spying effectively. So, um, But it's good that you've uncovered it. And, yes. and, and it's good that we're talking about it today. So am I right in thinking that Jane Horwood and Charles I both have a Dutch connection? Well, Jane had concocted or helped to concoct a plan, which failed, I must say, to have Charles I escape to Holland, mm. where his sister Elizabeth Stuart had held court since 1621. And Charles I's own daughter, Mary, had another court because she had married William II, son of the Stadtholder and Prince of Orange in 1641. Now, in The Hague, in the Dutch Republic, the courts of Elizabeth and Mary had a very large English and Scottish contingent, and they had sort of become alternative Stuart courts on the continent that assisted many refugees. And Jane must have thought that Charles was bound to receive a warm welcome in, the, in Holland, in The Hague. So this is interesting because obviously you're you're in in the Netherlands at the moment. So that's also another serendipitous thing, isn't it? That your key character who you're researching has this connection to where you're living. Yes. Well, I'm sort of always in between England and the Netherlands. At the moment, I'm even a, a visiting senior research fellow in Oxford. So while we're recording this, I'm in Oxford, but usually working in Leiden in the Netherlands. So I'm mm. always between the two countries. Uh, which is true for many of, of the historical figures I'm writing about. Well, we'll get on to talk about some of the uh, aspects of King Charles I and, and his attempted escape later on. But uh, talking about Jane specifically and her family background, what can you tell us about Jane Horwood's early life? Yes, she was the daughter of William Ryder and Elizabeth de Bussy. Her mother had served as Queen Anna of Denmark's Lavender. Now, that's an obsolete word for washerwoman or laundress. And her mother worked at Somerset House. And her father had been James VI and first principal surveyor of the stables, meaning he was effectively responsible for the transport of the king. Her father died in 1617 when Jane was just a babe of two years old. And two years later, her mother married the Scot James Maxwell, an influential and wealthy gentleman of Prince Charles's bedchamber. And he was also a smuggler, as he smuggled some of the crown jewels for the king in the 1630s. Okay, from what you're saying there, she's got a bit of a connection to underhand practices. Oh, nice? yes. <laughs> I think uh, she very much learned several things from both her, her mother as well as uh, especially her stepfather later. Right, so that suggests that she was a good candidate for a career in espionage then. Yes, I think so. She she might have had some kind of training. It's very difficult to know that for certain, but I think so. 
But um, Jane, being a woman of these times, uh, presumably there were some suitors who came along. Uh, did she get married? How old was she at the time when she got married? She got married at the age of 19 in 1634. And her stepfather had arranged a marriage for her with the 20-year-old Broom Holwood, the heir of Holton Park in Oxford. And Broom was to take her as a wife, accepting family influence as compensation for an inadequate dowry. Maxwell was to ensure that Broom's father, Sir Thomas, who had ordered a man's murder at the time, would be treated leniently in Star Chamber, a legal court. So they basically made a deal. He would get off, basically, with murder, and Broom was to marry Jane. Wow. <laughs> the plot thickens. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, it's full of intrigue, her life. Yes. Did she and Broom have children? Yes, four of which only two, Broom Jr. and Diana, lived into adulthood. Uh, another son, James, died after a mere four months, and another daughter, Elizabeth, died aged three. Was it a slightly dysfunctional family, uh, or, or was it stable in some strange way? Was it happy? It was certainly not happy, and certainly not stable. The marriage turned out to be abusive, and if you would allow me to read a passage from a lawyer describing the testimony that she gave in the court of High Chancery much later in 1673, but she gives testimony about the first years of her marriage, and it's an extraordinary document. The lawyer writes, her husband most cruelly and barbarously misused her by beating, striking, kicking and reviling of her, and confining her to a chamber and locking her up and denying her necessaries of meat and clothes and by exercising cruelties upon her. For preservation of her life, she was necessitated to fly from him, the lawyer writes. So this was a highly abusive relationship, quite toxic. So I can kind of understand how she would, I presume, want to get out of this. Yes, as quickly as possible, I would say. Did the marriage end in divorce or...? It did at the very end of her life, but at the time she was active as a spy, she was certainly still married. And still trying to be a mother, I suppose, to these children, despite the fact that not all of them lived through to adulthood. Yes, evidence is sparse, but what happened that in 1643, when basically her sort of first undertakings begin, her husband abandoned her for another woman, for Catherine Mary Allen, his mother's servant, and he fled to the continent to start a new life. And it is around this time that Jane embraced her life as she intelligence her, derogative term for a woman active in the murky trade of espionage. And she may have felt that she had no other choice, because as you say, she had these two surviving toddlers to take care of. And we don't know whether he took them with him to the continent, or whether she had still had to take care of them. And nor is it certain when she moved in with her mother-in-law at Holton. And she might have seen her descent in the underworld of espionage as her only viable option at the time. Yes, I think listeners are probably detecting that all the pieces of the puzzle are sort of being drawn together. And you can understand why it might have been the only way out for her and probably some sort of career aspiration, I suppose. Something to give her a bit of purpose and stability. Would that be true? Yes, well, perhaps she never aspired to become a spy or she intelligencer, but she somehow had to take care of business. And perhaps what made her a especially good candidate for her career was not only her kind of family courtly connections, but perhaps also because she was a woman. 
in this time, women were automatically invisible, above suspicion. Even when faced with apparently damning evidence, people simply refused that women could possibly be involved in such plots. Historiography has tended to follow suit, I must say. But this freedom from suspicion in the early modern period, which derived from the commonly held belief that women were less capable of rational thought than men, they thought they were kind of physically, biologically incapable of having political thoughts. Imagine that. But that allowed them to have a freedom of movement, which was often denied to men during wars. And you can imagine that mobility was certainly an essential attribute for any intelligencer. So let's talk now about how she gets these connections with King Charles I. For people who don't know much about the English Civil War period, which of course comprises a number of conflicts, what was happening at the time in England? What were the conflicts about? Well, to put it quite briefly, there were basically two sides, though both sides had many different factions. The sides were those who supported the king, called the Cavaliers, and those who supported Parliament, the Roundheads. And the civil wars had many social, political and religious causes and actually started as early as 1638 with the Bishop Wars in Scotland, which were ignited when the king attempted to unify the church by imposing a new book of common prayer in Scotland. It did not go well. And the fact that he hadn't called a parliament since 1629 did not help matters. And his so-called personal rule was increasingly seen as a dictatorship. Before long, things got utterly out of hand. And how out of hand are we talking? Well, the country was in civil war. The the three kingdoms, both sides were fighting each other. And Charles would have to flee at some point. How does Jane Horwood then become this secret support to King Charles I, who is now suddenly not really in control of his lands? Yes, he's no longer in control of anything. Around the time of her husband abandoned her, so we're talking 1643, she used her connections, particularly those with her family, but also the inner circle of the king's servants. And those connections allowed her to become a she intelligencer. I see. Uh, Why was she a royalist as well? Why did she side with the king? That's perhaps not particularly difficult to see, because if you think about her mother and her biological father, they both held very important positions at the court of King James. And then her stepfather was Black Rod, officiating at the annual feast of the Order of the Carter. So her entire family had accrued their wealth, lands and titles, serving the king. So they had a lot to be thankful for. I suppose I'd like to ask an off-piece question at this point. Yes. How does one generate funds for this? How is she supporting herself if her husband had gone away, found another woman, and she was looking after two young children? Yes. How would a single mother support herself in this period? Was she getting direct financial aid from the king? Oh, yes, absolutely. But she had to do something in return, of course. One of the things she did to do to give very practical help to the royalist cause, she started smuggling. And she started smuggling of gold into Oxford. And she smuggled around nearly 800 kilos of gold. Now, that's worth about 83,000 pounds. If you sort of think about money, what is 83,000 pounds in today's money? That's nearly 10 million. It's more like 37 million if you consider today's gold market. And she smuggled that gold to Oxford 
possibly in soap barrels. And that's a lot of barrels of soap. Definitely. Almost money laundering in a way. In a way. So that's the practical help. She was obviously getting a cut of this. Yes, I, I she was getting a cut. Okay. And, yeah. At some point, we have Chelsea's putting a thousand pounds in her hand for her own use. Right. And that's also a lot of money. It's a um, lot of money. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that, that could last you through a lifetime and more in those days. How else did she give practical help to the royalist cause apart from smuggling? She provided underground postal networks. She was very much at the heart of a network of communication, which allowed Charles to communicate with a lot of other people as well. So similar to the postmistress that you described at the start then? Yes, yes. Um, A lot of women were used as as kind of messengers. So was she travelling on horseback through the night or something like that and relaying letters? We don't know, but we can sort of imagine that though she would have needed an, uh, probably an escort as well. So we don't know how she travelled. So that would be kind of more speculation. But you can see that it would be highly dangerous. Given that she has this association with the king, presumably she was seen coming and going by other people whom the king was working with. So was she well known within royal circles? And was it an open secret that Jane was aiding? the monarch. Oh, it, it must have been, certainly to royalists. You can imagine that it wasn't her own gold, those 800 kilos of gold, it, w- it wasn't her own gold that she was smuggling. Several men made donations to the king's war chest, uh, using Jane as, as their courier to Oxford. So she certainly did not operate alone, so a lot of people must have known about her. What did Charles I's advisors think about the king lending his ear to Jane Horwood. Yeah, or lending his ear to any she intelligencer at the time. They advised against it. Women might be useful, unmatchable even, as messengers, but they very much were of the opinion that women could never be trusted with documents embodying acts of true secrecy, such as cipher keys or coded letters. As one of his advisors, who himself used Jane as a messenger to the king, put it, He wrote, the dear-bought experience purchased by my own folly, which I have had of that sex, makes me generally to judge them to be vessels too weak for the retention of strong liquor. So he's saying they were either too fragile or they could not keep secrets, as women were prone to gossip, as we all know, of course. It's certainly a damning uh, character trait if you were a spy. But um, was there any more to their relationship than meets the eye? Because obviously you mentioned a short time ago that uh, Charles had to get something else out of the relationship. Yes, well, he, he of course was paying her large quantities of money and she was proving to be very useful. But he also hadn't seen his wife for a couple of years. Queen Henrietta Maria had fled to the continent and while he was incarcerated, his relationship with Jane developed into a highly flirtatious one and most likely a sexual one and possibly out of mere boredom. Charles has been imprisoned for a very long time by, by this time. And one of the deciphered letters, which was deciphered in, by Sarah Pointing in 2006, so relatively speaking quite recently, one of the deciphered letters reads, I imagine that there's one possible way that you may get a swiping from me. This is what the king writes to Jane. You may get a swiping from me. And he says, you must excuse my plain expressions, get you alone to my chamber. At this point, there's no beating around the bush. 
Jane is to be smuggled into Charles's chamber and have sex with him. And we know that Jane visited him more than once in his chambers in Kyersburg Castle when he was incarcerated. Of course, there's the question whether she was ever in a position to refuse his, his advances. She intelligences often found themselves in a precarious situation because they straddled the divide between the public and the private. If you were a spy, it's a dubious profession because you would have to lie and you would have to cheat. And as one critic, literary critic has put it, the trade in knowledge was associated with the trade in sex and informing by women could carry a sexualized stigma. So women without a title trod dangerous ground. Not only was their credibility often challenged, because you can't really trust women anyway, but once caught, they could be easily be painted as prostitutes or worse. But it's a trope that you see in modern spy uh, literature and films, the, the Bond films, you know, James Bond is a notorious womanizer, isn't he? Oh yes, very much so. He's obviously using women to get access to the enemy or whatever, or to information. So it's not new, is it? It doesn't really matter what side you're on. Uh, sex is always going to be a powerful tool in the spying person's arsenal. Oh, yes, absolutely. But I, I think it was Charles was certainly uh, had more power over Jane than the other way around, I think, in this instance. I suppose we can also speculate that perhaps she might have enjoyed it because her husband was no longer on the scene. Oh, of course, you never know. Might have been quite um, alluring to have this high-status man be interested in her. Oh, absolutely. So we, we don't really know. She's certainly played along. Charles, uh, incidentally, had made sure that she had a lover at the time in 1647, and he had made sure that the lover would be sent to Constantinople as a kind of ambassador. So he had made sure that her lover was out of the way as well, so he could get proper access to her. Right, so it seems like he was quite interested then. Okay, that's very interesting. Another dynamic that I didn't think that we would explore today. <laughs> but um, let's get into the nuts and bolts now of how she actually spied and how Jane worked. Obviously, romantic relations was, was one part of it, smuggling another. Did she work alone? Was she supported by a group? How did it, how did it work? She was definitely supported by a group. So she is part of a little spy network. And that spy network also included other women, uh, Lady Daubigny and Lady Carlyle. Uh, the listeners m might know Lady Carlyle because Alexandre Dumas used her in The Three Musketeers. She's my lady in The Three Musketeers. Uh, my lady is very much modeled on, on Lady Carlyle in the 17th century. So she worked with other women, but also with uh, servants close to the king at, at Carisburg Castle. There's a good support network in place because a lot of people are with the status quo and uh, that's the royalist cause, effectively. Oh, yes. um, you mentioned there were these letters and at the top of the discussion, you also mentioned this other separate historical fact of um, the uh, corrupt postmistress. Yes. So presumably the way that they communicated would have been via coded letter. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. And of course, you, you have the problem that you don't want to... Uh, use the ordinary post. So some of Charles's servants lingered at Natley Abbey, that's the seat of the Marquess of Hartford in the village of Natley near Southampton. And from there, they arranged a kind of secret underground postal network using some newly installed female servants at Carisbrook, two laundress, laundresses as go-betweens, as well as Henry Firebrace, one of his servants, as another go-between. 
and they communicated in encoded letters using cipher keys. Now, most cipher keys at the time have a substitution alphabet. So the letter A is 10, but also 20 and also 30. The letter B is 50, 60, 70, etc. And a list of names or phrases called a, a nomenclator. So the king could be 190, for instance. She was agent 409, but also agent 390. She was also N, and she sometimes signed as Helen. She, was, she had several code names as well. And of course, you can imagine that you preferably don't want to sign any letter if, if you're dealing with secret information. So you could either sign with a, a code name, therefore she signed as Helen, but sometimes she didn't sign her letters at all. And Charles could still recognize which letters were hers because they had agreed on a special way of folding their letters. In this period, there was no such thing as the gummed envelope. That's a, a 19th century invention. So if you write your letter, you fold the sheet of paper in such a way that it becomes its own sending device. And that's what we call letter locking. So just imagine that you agree to fold your letter in a special triangle if you want to communicate with me. And I would enfold it as another kind of origami bird. So we, each of us would know who is sending those letters. Right. That's really interesting. And you've given some examples of the, the codes used. Were there also sort of squiggles and symbols used in these codified letters? Well, when you look at the page, a lot of numbers are staring back at you because of, of the, the cipher alphabets and the nomenclators. So you have whole strings of numbers and then she signs as N or she signs as Helen. So there, there are no other squiggles that they are using. I'm trying to understand how they would have uh, started up this code to begin with. Do you think they would have had to sit down and have a meeting and dis discuss <laughs> how they were going to actually do this? Because if the king is already imprisoned, how do you then get a letter to him saying, oh, your majesty, uh, just to let you know that we're communicating code from now on and here's the uh, template for it and uh, this is what you need to do. I mean, how would it have worked to start with? Well, that's basically it. You would, of course, have to get a cipher key to the other party. So you need to share a key with the person you want to communicate with. So that's the tricky part, because obviously, if as soon as the cipher key is intercepted, then the enemy knows all about your correspondence. So if she apparently walked in and out of Carisbrook Castle because she shared the king's bed, so she could easily have given him such a key. So they agreed on, on a system and then just continued to use it. Now, this is also very laborious. It just takes a lot of time to write a letter, also to decode it again. And sometimes Charles is complaining, especially about the writings of Lady Daubigny, who is also part of the same uh, network, saying, could you please write shorter messages because I can't decode it in time for, for me to reply. Yes, gosh, it's like maybe doing Morse code or something, isn't it? Just sat there for hours just trying to work it out. And then you've got a, it's like a maths problem, which um, would be quite a strain on someone who's already locked up. In terms of their communications then, was all the coded communication while he was an inmate at Carisbrook Castle on the Isle of Wight, this English heritage site? Well, it started earlier as well, when as soon as he was basically imprisoned at Holdenby. I think it's important to remember that 
cryptography, that's the communication uh, in ciphers and in codes, was really the language of the elites. Before the Civil War, a lot of people were using it, not necessarily to communicate secrets, but basically to communicate with friends. You might have done it yourself in primary school that you exclude uh, others from the class uh, by not sharing the code, but you include uh, your friends by sharing the code and you write secret messages. So the elite used it just to, as a, a tool of communication. During the Civil War, something changed. Parliaments sort of noticed, actually, this can be used to communicate secretly, and they forbid it. So as soon as you were caught with a ciphered letter or with a cipher key, you could be punished as a spy. So you could be executed. So it's extremely dangerous for Jane and these other women and other men to continue to write in cipher with the king. These coded letters that were going back and forth between Jane Horwood and King Charles I during the respective times where he's imprisoned, whether he's in one place or the other, were these ever intercepted? I mean, just getting it from one place to another must have been a challenge. Oh, yes, very much so. And it's challenging to get your, your ciphered letter into a prison cell, of course, and for the king to be able to then also send a, a letter back to you. It was highly challenging. And that's where the kind of uh, laundry ladies come in, because they would smuggle the letters in linen. So they had their ways of getting the, these letters in and out. But not all of the people in that network could necessarily be trusted. So there's also some evidence that Charles and Jane were betrayed at certain points and that the enemy was actually well aware of what, what was going in and out. Oh, very interesting. Did the code have to evolve as a result of some of these betrayals by smaller characters in the story? Well, if they had been smarter, they would have done that. But you sort of see that even ambassadors at the time, so even kind of well-trained diplomats, use the same cipher keys for years on end. It also has, of course, to do with the kind of problem of how to get your cipher key to your correspondent. And it's also very laborious to basically learn a new language. So you wouldn't necessarily change your cipher key that often. And, of course, they believed that their kind of network of communication was safe. That was a false belief, but of course, it's, that's very kind of easy to say with kind of hindsight. Jane's movements while she was in communication with the king, did she stay in one particular place in England or was she quite itinerant? She was quite itinerant. Uh, she was travelling back and forth to London on a regular basis. And we might explain later why, why that was. Whereabouts was she based if she was travelling to and from London? I think she very much used Natalie Abbey in, in Southampton and then going to the city centre to negotiate with some of the conspirators. And let, let's talk a bit more about uh, how King Charles I came to be actually imprisoned. Obviously, the Civil War period is a, is a vast thing to grapple with. But how briefly would you describe his arrest and, and how he came to be imprisoned, particularly at, at Carisbrook? Yes. So during the kind of first civil war, he was based in Oxford. And when he sort of realized that all was basically lost, he left Oxford quite secretly and went to the Scots in, we're talking May 1646, to basically surrender. And he wanted to negotiate with them. And he negotiated for quite a long time. 
they would give him an army of uh, 20,000 if he would accept their religion uh, for a trial period of three years. They try to have him sign this agreement, which later becomes known as the engagement and has a kind of second resurgence later. But the negotiations really do not amount to anything. So he is in Newcastle negotiating with the Scots at the time. They see that he is not going to sign this agreement. So they hand him over to English Parliament in February 1647. And from that moment, he's basically imprisoned. I see. And he's imprisoned in two particular locations that we've already mentioned. Is that right? Well, his captors moved him repeatedly. So the king's prisons transfers from Holdenby House to Hampton Court, then to Carisbrook Castle, to Newport and Hurst Castle, amongst other locations. They move him continually. That must have been quite difficult for Jane to adapt to then, if she needs to stay in communication. Yeah, so she, she basically follows him and new locations give new challenges. But you see, at the beginning, he escapes once, and that's from Hampton Court. And it's from that point that he flees to the Isle of Wight, to Carisbrook Castle, not fully realising that he will be trapped there again. So I guess in that respect, he was in prison twice. But Hampton Court was a real court, and he was allowed a lot of servants, and the security was pretty relaxed at the time. And I think it might well have been one of Cromwell's ploys that by relaxing surveillance and simultaneously convincing the king that there was a plot against him, that his life was threatened, Cromwell may have intended that Charles be forced to the Isle of Wight, be forced to uh, make his escape, and so end up in a more dangerous place than Hampton Court had ever been. And with more security as well. And with more security. Hampton Court was much easier to infiltrate. Yes, but Charles probably thought, because it's on the Isle of Wight, on the southern part of the British Isles, effectively, that uh, he could have a escape over to the Netherlands or Yes, somewhere. but it was greatly mistaken in that, though they do try to organise some escape attempts. Yes. Well, that's a really interesting thought, that uh, Oliver Cromwell was laying a trap for King Charles I. I think that's a really interesting thing. It certainly sounds like something out of a spy novel. Um, oh, it, it is. It is better than a spy novel, I think. <laughs> yes. How did Jane try to free Charles from Carisbrook Castle on the Isle of Wight then? She was a very clever woman. So she was uh, not only attractive, she was this kind of redhead uh, that Charles was very interested in, but she clearly was also highly intelligent. Even at Hampton Court, she was trying to arrange his escape and she had prepared a safe house in Essex her advice to go to Essex arrived too late and, and Charles had already gone to the Isle of Wight. I often wonder what would have happened if he had escaped to Essex. But she basically organised another three escape attempts, two from the Isle of Wight and one later from uh, Newport. The first was that he had to climb through a window and subsequently Firebrace, one of his servants, was to fling him over the wall. And there he would have other people waiting for him and they would take him to a ship to leave the island. Now, all of this is very farcical. He got stuck. Basically, he was too fat to go through to the window and he thought it was too high. Uh, and if you go to Carisbrook Castle, you could see that it, it's nonsense because he could basically have stepped out of that window. So he lost courage. So that was oh, the I first see. escape attempt. 
Yes. And there was another one? Yes. The second one was a bit more complicated. So Jane had managed to get him a, a handsaw so he could cut through the bars of his window. By that time, they had sort of moved him in the castle so he was in another room. So with a, a saw, he could cut through the bars, but she also managed to get aqua fortis to him. Now, that's nitric acid. So he was trying to melt the bars as well with nitric acid. At that point, he was betrayed because his captors just st- stood in his room one day and sort of asking him what he was doing. So that didn't work either. No. Well, even soaring is going to create a bit of a noise, isn't it? Oh, yes, absolutely. So again, we have this kind of farcical situation. You sort of wonder (laughs) how they could have thought that this was going to work. But by that time, Jane had arranged uh, several ships to be waiting for him. And she was herself in a ship on the Medway waiting for him. So they really thought that this would work. Now, did Jane have any help in trying to get Charles out of Carisbrook Castle? Yes, and I think here is where it goes wrong, because she she had this great network that we already talked about, but she also travelled to London, as we said. And why did she go to London? Because she was constantly in consultation with an astrologer called William Lilly. And on May 1647... She consulted the astrologer for the very first time when Charles was imprisoned in Holdenby House. And she was asking the astrologer how best to reach the king at Holdenby. And he's drawing all these astrological charts and he's in his notebooks. He records her visits and he writes her name, Lady Warwood, backwards. So you end up with something like Dororo. And he did this to protect her identity or perhaps to cover up his own acquaintance with her. Now, he gave her advice on all three escape plans, so also the one from Newport. And in fact, the nitric acid was his idea. Now, unfortunately, it turned out that he was also a spy for Parliament. So it may very well have been that Jane, who ultimately and unwittingly, it was her that betrayed the king. Even though Charles later thought that Lady Carlyle was his undoing, Jane had shared all the information with this untrustworthy astrologer in London. What a terrible blow for Jane, because up until this point, she was quite um, adept and careful, I think. Yes, it's very unfortunate and very resourceful. Just imagine that you would be able to arrange uh, several ships coming to the Isle of Wight. So she must have been an incredible lady. And it's really peculiar that she makes such a mistake. I suppose at the time, astrology was something that you could uh, put your faith in. Yes, many thought about William Lilly as an imposter, but she really trusted the man without reserve. And that was her mistake. Trust in spy rings. It's a a fragile thing. The execution of King Charles I will be something that people are often interested to hear about. And we did cover it in uh, episode 109 of the podcast. But uh, For people who didn't hear that one, how did Charles come to be executed? Eventually, he was brought back to London, where he was tried, indicted and found guilty of treason against England by using his power to pursue his personal interests rather than the good of his kingdoms. So he he was found guilty of treason and he stood to trial in London. Is there any evidence that uh, Jane would have reacted to this news? Do we have any sort of letters 
left by her or anything? Oh, I, I wish. No, there are stories of Jane running to her lover when he steps through a window of the banqueting house on, onto the scaffold, but those cannot be substantiated. I like a good love story, but I have no evidence for it. Well, I think uh, that's probably unlikely, isn't it, really, for a, for a spy? You would have to sort of put your personal feelings, if there are any, following these romantic relations with the king to one side and preserve yourself. Yes, um, you, you need to protect yourself. And, and certainly you, you can't put that much, commit too much to paper. What happened to Jane Horwood after the death of King Charles I? She was betrayed. She was betrayed by Thomas Cook, an MP who had chosen the royalist side. And Cook was caught and confessed all he knew to save his own life. And part of his confessions was telling on Jane. And she was fined £600 and very briefly imprisoned. Her estranged husband, Brome, refused to pay for her maintenance during her incarceration because she had to buy everything yourself, the candles, the food, everything. And when she finally returned to Oxford, Broom was waiting for her and he beat her almost to death. Goodness me. Do you think that she feared being caught and suffering the same fate as the king? Perhaps. Uh, she was. I don't think she would f fear that she was going to suffer the same fate as a man would because women were treated more leniently and because legally the husband was responsible for the wife's actions. So there was also a natural dis distaste for mistreating women, especially gentlewomen. Having said that, Lady Carlisle, she was also arrested because of um, Cook's confessions. Her arrest lasted three full years. So she must have had some fear, but she probably knew that she wouldn't be punished in the same way as, as a man would be. What happened to her colleague, Lady Carlisle? Did she, obviously after her incarceration, did she just go on back to normal life or? Oh no, Lady Carlisle is, is, is a wonderful, she intelligence. Uh, she just, even in the tower, she continues to plot. So she continues to write uh, other letters full of schemes and, and uh, new plots. So she would never really retire in that respect. And what of Jane? What, what did she do with the rest of her life? She continued to be very feisty. She took her husband to court for alimony and a divorce, and uh, that alimony was granted her in 1659. Okay, so she kind of got her own back against him. Oh, yes. For his beatings. Terrible man. What does the story then of Jane Horwood tell us about the art of espionage in the 17th century? You can sort of see how, how they would use cipher keys, how they would use coded letters, how they would infiltrate certain circles the role of codes and, and intrigue. And I think it's especially interesting that even though the sexual aspect was part of it, you can also see women operating in the same way as men, smuggling messages, writing in cipher codes. So I think that's also very important to realise that women were very much part of it. And because of the way that they were viewed in society by men who mostly held the power, they could almost operate with impunity because people would think, well, she's far too pure and not intelligent enough to be able to do this. So therefore, people turned a blind eye. So actually, probably the best spies were these so-called she-intelligences. Yeah, I, I fully agree. They weren't suspected, so they could sort of move into all kinds of rooms. Nobody really paid attention to them. As you can see with Jane, she's just going in and out of Carisbrook Castle 
and nobody is sort of really arresting her. And so they thought that women were physically incapable, biologically incapable of, of thinking political things. So even when women were caught, and you can see this from reading the interrogation reports, they ask all the relevant questions. And you see the women manipulating their sex, even sort of stating, you can't seriously think that as a woman, I would be capable of doing such things. <laughs> and and they, they agree and, and they uh, let these women go. While the male plotters are executed, they are hanged. So they really had an advantage. What did the guards and the constable uh, of Carisbrook Castle, what did they think of this woman coming and going? Did they just think that she was the prostitute or something? Well, we don't know. We don't know what they say. Again, the, the evidence isn't there. One of them is describing her as a very attractive redhead that he has seen. She had some pock holes in her face, but that's all he, he says about her. So they don't really comment. Again, I think it's just a female servant. Why pay her any attention? It's amazing how the sort of the blindness of the sexism at the time just completely allowed people like Jane to do their work. It's I think the, the same is probably true nowadays. I don't think anyone would sort of, for instance, pay any attention to a middle-aged woman. <laughs> I suppose. Finally, though, Nadine, for visitors who want to get closer to this story, we've mentioned Carisbrook Castle a number of times, of course, but whereabouts should they visit? And are there any, any other English heritage sites connected to this story? Yes, so definitely go to Carisbrook Castle because you can see that window is not very high. You could have easily stepped out of the window, so it's quite funny and hilarious if you go there. But also go to Hurst Castle, where he was also imprisoned. You can really follow in, in Charles I's footsteps. Hurst is in Hampshire, is that right? Yes, definitely go to Hurst Castle as well. It was established by Henry VIII as a kind of artillery fort, and you can really follow in Charles I's footsteps if you go to Carisbrook Castle and then to Hearst Castle. Why not visit them both? Just finally tying up uh, our discussion then, I've been quite surprised, I think, by the sophistication of spying in the 17th century. There was a lot of work to do, obviously, learning a new language effectively with these coded letters. Yes. But um, it really goes to show that um, people were very, very sophisticated. They were quite resourceful. And yes, these kind of cipher keys were used until well into the 18th century. They didn't change that much. There were a lot of kind of theoretical books written on, on ciphers, but you can see them operating in, in everyday kind of use in the same way as, as Charles I and Jane would have used them. So I hope people listening to this can really see that espionage is not this 20th century invention. It's been going on for centuries where there's been intrigue political wranglings, corruption, conflicts between countries. There's been a need to influence the other side or infiltrate the other side or even dominate the other side. And spying is just a part of that. Oh, absolutely. And women were a part of that. And what you can also see when looking at these letters written by these women, they're very good at espionage, but often it was to no avail as the information they provided was often ignored. So that was not necessarily their own fault. So any young listeners who perhaps are interested, there's always a career in GCHQ, MI5, MI6, the British Army, for women who, who, who fancy themselves as a, a modern day she intelligencer. Yes. 
Nadine, thank you very much for talking to us. It's been really, really interesting. And thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll talk about how a new project is helping to tell the story of Lindisfarne Priory on Holy Island in Northumberland. The museum has undergone a really significant transformation. So it's really about a journey through history and why the site remains important and relevant today. Thanks for listening. See you next time.